Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm broadcasting from the Naddle Valley just south of Keswick and I'm joined remotely from distant Geltsdale by author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello, David. It's good to be with you again. Ready to get into the outdoors virtually. That's right. Yes. Yet again, I think it's our third lockdown broadcast, isn't it? But um, we're making the most of things, Mark. We've got a, a fabulous guest again. And we're exploring one of your great passions today in a part of the county that I know you hold very dear indeed. Talk to us about this passion that you've had for the best part of 20 years. Well, it actually goes back 30 years. I was invited by my publisher at the time, Cicerone, to write a guide to a walk from coast to coast along the line of Hadrian's Wall. That's 10 years before there was a national trail. So I discovered this monument having years before produced a guide to Offa's Dyke, it was another frontier. And once you get into the whole notion of the frontier, the Roman frontier, it becomes addictive. And I really find it fascinating as a subject. So we went to Hadrian's Wall way back, I think, in Country Stride number two. Um, And we had a, a very brief wander along it, but we didn't really explore it in a great deal of detail which is a shame because for me it's one of Cumbria's most neglected monuments. Northumberland gets a lot of value out of Hadrian's Wall, Cumbria does not but what we all see today is that section of the frontier that is probably the most emblematic of the frontier. It tells you so much about what the frontier was all about and our guest today is David Brees from Edinburgh who is genuinely a world authority on Hadrian's Wall, the Roman army. So it really will be a tremendous treat for me, and I hope our listeners to hear his perspective on the details of the frontier. So this is our chance to delve deeply into some of the history of the wall, into the character of Hadrian, think a little bit about how the north of England was at that time in history, and Just give us a brief insight, Mark, into the walk we have planned today, because this is a walk that, whenever lockdown ends, um, listeners will be able to go and enjoy. Yes, indeed. This is a a section of Hadrian's Wall Path where it emerges uh, from the Northumberland boundary in Gilsland and goes west towards Bird Oswald and beyond. And it contains so many other features of the frontier. So it really is a fascinating section that is within the realms of our country stride domain in Cumbria. Right, okay. Well, I'm looking forward to expanding my knowledge of that bit of countryside that I don't know particularly well, but also this fascinating period in history. Let's go and meet David Breeze. A warm welcome, David. This is a golden opportunity for me to speak to somebody who I dearly admire, who's got a great passion for all things Roman. And Hedrick's Wall is a great focus of yours. Can you give us a little perspective where you live, 
and your background association that brings you to the wall? Okay, well, I live in Edinburgh now. I've lived here uh, something over 50 years. I came here for work. I was appointed an inspector of ancient monuments with what was then the Ministry of Public Building and Works. And I simply stayed. It's a good place to be for Romanists because uh, the Antonine Wall is 30 minutes down the road from where I live. But I would have to admit my greater passion really is Hadrian's Wall. And I first visited it, believe it or not, 60 years ago this year. Sixth form outing with my very first girlfriend, I would have to admit. A year or so later, when I went to Durham University to read history and Freshers' Conference, we were offered various outings, one of which was to Hadrian's Wall. And I said to myself, well, I've seen Hadrian's Wall. I'll go somewhere different. Uh, little did I know that I would spend 50 years of my life immersed in Hadrian's Wall. Um, and it's difficult to know precisely what is the reason for the attachment. First of all, it's got to be history. Since I can remember, literally, the age of nine or 10, I wanted to study history. My longest running research project, I started at the age of nine or 10, which is studying my own family tree, and I'm still doing it. So that gives you a flavor of um, uh, obstinacy, perhaps. The curiosity. One of the greatest fascinations, I'd have to admit, is it's almost a bottomless mine. Uh, there is so much information to see on the ground and to read about um, and study in the history books and archaeological reports. It's the gift that keeps giving for me. The conjectures keep coming as well, because nothing is set in stone other than the wall itself. Investigators of the wall, a man called C. Stevens, who's ancient historian at Oxford, he says the study of Hader's wall is littered with discarded hypotheses. And it's a good phrase, um, which we all actually need to have up on our walls, because it reminds us that whatever we think today, somebody will disprove tomorrow. Well, we're going to take a walk today looking into some of the more significant points on Hadrian's Wall. But before that, let's get a sense of the context. So perhaps you can take us back in time to what we often describe as the Dark Ages, uh, the unrecorded time in history. And the time we often think of as sort of backward because there's nothing written about it. But that's really not the case, is it, David? Well, that's an interesting question and a very important one. We assume that somehow, before the Romans arrived, that Britain as a whole was just very backward, which it was not. First of all, southern Britain minted coins, which takes some skill. If we move northwards, the earliest records we've got of the cultivation of cereals up in Aberdeenshire is in the 3,500 or thereabouts BC. So farming had been taking place right across the north of Britain. These people were sophisticated. In Scotland, they built the Brocks, 43 feet high, dry stone built, quite amazing. Structured society with chiefs and kings who had the sophistication when faced with the Roman advance about 80 AD, could bring their forces together, appoint their own chief in order to face the Romans. So there was political sophistication as well as architectural and farming, a structured society and so on. In fact, by the time the Romans got here, if we want to understand the landscape they saw, we just look out of our windows today. By about 500 BC, the tree cover was down to what it is today, about 10% of the landscape. 
lots of little farms out there, very similar today. So let's set the scene on the arrival of Hadrian, and uh, it's a critical time, isn't it? The previous all-conquering attitude of Trajan, his predecessor, saw that the boundaries of Rome were limitless. But now a more pragmatic approach to consolidate the frontier uh, and build a series of land frontiers became the, the new norm that Hadrian himself imposed. Hadrian's wall, which I'll come to in just one moment, is interesting in the whole scale of Roman military history because when the Romans first arrived up in the north of Britain, they had the attitude of they were going to conquer the whole island. It was just how they saw the world. Like white men in the 18th and 19th century, it was theirs to be taken. So this is 80 AD. By the time we get to the time of Hadrian, generation later, a different world is coming into being. Hadrian realised they're getting manpower shortage. There's pressures on the empire. He decided that they're not going to go in for expansion anymore. So he starts building frontier installations in a new way. There were always forts, obviously, along the frontier edge, but now they're backed up by structures like Hadrian's Wall, a great palisade in Germany, earthworks and stone walls in North Africa, plugging gaps between natural features often, like mountains, deserts, rivers. But it's a new way of seeing the frontier. And Hadrian, therefore, orders the construction of a wall in Britain. Who was Hadrian and what set him apart from previous emperors? Hadrian was actually born in, in Rome, as far as we know, um, but he came from a family which originated in Spain. He was amongst the very elite of the Roman Empire, the aristocracy. His uncle had been emperor before him, was a great military man campaigning in modern Romania and on the eastern frontier. And Hadrian succeeded him. Um, and decided to draw in his horns, stop this campaigning, take a different approach to the edge of empire. But he had served the normal career of a senior aristocrat, brought up to run the empire. He started travelling. He travelled around the empire more than any other emperor before or since to see for himself what the frontiers were like, to see how efficient and disciplined and well-trained the army was. About five years into his reign, he comes to Britain. And we have a much later, 250 years later, account, which says he put many things to rights, and he was the first to build a wall 80 miles long to separate the Romans and the barbarians. Uh, create a line, if you like, a barrier. And he set about instructing his senior officers to get on with it and build a, this wall. Well, we have a picture of this well-travelled aristocrat and his commitment to consolidate the frontier by building barriers. But the genesis of his plans occurred probably five years before when he took command of the empire, when he was still in Antioch. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? We know ourselves that big projects take some time to plan. I mean, we're looking at HS2 but if we look at a military example, when Saddam Hussein um, invaded Kuwait, the Americans didn't immediately respond. They collected their forces, they planned, they carried out the intelligence, and when they were ready to move, they moved. So if we keep that in our minds, Roman 
infrastructure projects were not that different. We know Hadrian became emperor in modern Syria, and he traveled from there across Turkey and uh, the Bosphorus and met up with the governor of that province, uh, which is now in Romania. And he appointed him the new governor of Britain. Now, it seems likely that at that point, Hadrian had already worked out what he wanted to do. He wanted to consolidate his empire. He wanted to build barriers where they were necessary on the frontier line. You can imagine him having this sort of conversation. Right, I've decided no more expansion, says Emperor Hadrian. We are going to consolidate where we are. Uh, I want you to go to Britain and I want you to build a new wall. Yes, sir, that's fine. What kind of wall do you want, sir? Ah, um, so he gets out his equivalent to the cigarette packet and he does a sketch. Now, Hadrian knew the Eastern Roman Empire very well. And that many of the cities in the East were defended by city walls like Athens. But there were no city walls to speak of in the Western Empire. So if you are asked as emperor, well, sir, what kind of wall do you want? Hadrian scratches his head and says, oh, well, one like that round Athens. And that's more or less what he got. He got a strong stone wall with gaps in it, gates. And I think this is quite plausible that the new governor was sent to Britain with Hadrian's sketch. Right, we've got a measure of the man and his plans. Now it's time we set out on our walk into Cumbria. We're in Gilsland. And we're starting, in effect, from Poltress Burn, which is on the Northumberland-Cumbria border. The village is split in two, which is one of those quirks of history. Uh, we're at Marcos of 48, locally known as the King's Stables. And we'll cross over the mainline railway very carefully. And we'll encounter on this first stage three distinct elements of the wall's construction. And that's one of the canny things about doing it from here. We'll come upon the Mile Castle, the King's Stables, the defended gateway in the curtain wall of the Roman wall itself. We'll encounter a turret, which was a lookout tower. And at this point, we also discover the Broad Wall, which was the original plan of Hadrian's width of the wall. But we will discover it got narrower over time. So most of Hadrian's wall was built at a narrower gauge. Could you explain this to us a bit more detail, David? This stretch is fascinating for two reasons. It's the only length of wall, the only mile, where you can walk from one mile castle, which is obviously the first starting point of the mile, past two turrets to the next mile castle. And you can see a mile castle at each end and two turrets in between. It also provides an enormous amount of information about the history of the building of Hadrian's Wall. So we start off, as you say, with a turret, which is built to the broad wall. Well, what is a broad wall? Well, when the Romans set out to build their stone wall, the foundations they decided were going to be 10 Roman feet wide. They, they like round numbers. So you get 10 and 20 and 30, 40, 50 feet re reoccurring again and again. Anyway, the foundations were 10 Roman feet wide. The first course was laid on top of that, a little in from the edges, and then usually either that course or one, two or three up, there was another offset. So the actual wall itself was about nine foot six inches wide. And that's how this turret is built. It was excavated um, 100 years ago nearly now, 
But it, when they excavated it, they found what they thought was a buttress on each side of it. Well, we now this is what we call a point of reduction, is where the original broadwall, nine foot six wide, was reduced in thickness by about two feet. So it comes down to seven foot six inches. If you go to Brunton Turret, which is 20 miles to the east, it's down to five foot six inches wide. And that's the narrowest part of the wall we've got. There's this really important change in dimensions from nine foot six down to seven foot six and even less. And we can see this in this sector because sticking out from the south side of the wall is about two feet of foundation or indeed the lowest courses of the wall visible even today. And your conjecture here is that the period between Hadrian making his uh, back of a cigarette packet plan for the frontier and his arrival to look at it, something important changed. He increased the number of forts on the wall. So instead of having it on the stain gate to the south of the frontier, he brought the forts onto the line of the wall so the troops, the infantry and the cavalry could move north and south much quicker. So the wall itself didn't need to be as thick. I think that, and this is, I would have to admit, a heretical view. Um, I think what might have happened is, when on Hader's visit, he decided to amend his original plan, cooked up at the other end of the empire, and say, this, this isn't going to work. We'll build forts on the wall. It's a major change. It's got to be the emperor who decides this. But because you put forts on the wall, out with the intention of the soldiers operating to the north, it reduces the importance of the wall. Now, if you look at visualizations, the interpreted boards beside the wall, invariably, a typical one would have a few centuries on the top of the wall, looking out, boldly looking north. But what you're saying actually suggests this is unlikely. It wasn't a static frontier anymore. You come back to look at the German frontier, which is simply a thick fence. And you couldn't patrol along the top of that unless you were in the Roman army acrobatic corps. So if you think in terms of a narrower Hadrian's Wall, only five foot six wide in places, you don't need to patrol along the top. Once you move the focus from the wall line to the soldiers being operate, able to operate to the north through their northern fort gates, and that means they took out of the equation the possibility of patrolling along the top of the wall, and they reduced the thickness as a result of that. This is a heretical view, I freely admit. Now, another important thing, and I think this is rather intriguing, is that not only is it the fact that the explorators, the military scouts, are constantly moving to the north, they're also parlaying with the populace. So there's a great deal more stability and understanding developing between the, the native population and the Romans. Perhaps you could explain that a little bit to us. This is one of the most difficult questions to answer because we have no literary evidence. It's very difficult to date the local farms in the area. What we can see is that the Romans tried throughout the whole length of their empire to control the people immediately beyond their boundary. Um, it doesn't matter where we are. Hadrian's successor, Antoninus, gave a king to the kingdom of the Quadi who lived in, in modern Czech Republic. He gave a king to them. He, he, he was somebody who was pro-Roman. So what we can envisage 
is the same scenario in Britain of people living north of the wall who were in some sort of treaty relationship with the Romans, and the Romans tried to maintain this friendship as long as possible, and we have hints of this. So two or three generations after the wall was built, it's attacked from the north. And when the Roman writer actually explains what happens, he says uh, the Caledonians and the Maiati broke the treaties they had with Rome. And it was when these broke down, for some reason which we don't know, um, that the, the frontier was attacked. But these big invasions are probably relatively infrequent. What was more frequent, we can guess at, was raiding. Here was the Roman Empire rich in, uh, in many ways, and people wanted that. And so we can envisage the empire being attacked. And it was only rarely one would assume that these people ever got really close to the war because the tr Roman army would be out there patrolling to the north. They would have their emissaries further north. I mean, think of the Caledonians who broke their treaties in 197. They're living over 100 miles north of Hadra's Wall, and the Romans had treaties with these. So Hadra's Wall is just the base of a great infrastructure stretching to the north. Now let's put ourselves in the situation of a trader, uh, trading from the north of the wall, let's say. What would you encounter as you approach the wall? Well, you, you would probably meet some patrols. Um, you, you would have to demonstrate your credentials, as it were. And we know quite a lot about regulations uh, governing entry into the Roman Empire. So uh, it's clear that if you wanted to come into the empire and trade, which is perfectly possible, you had to come in unarmed. Entry was through specified places like my castle gates or forts. And you would proceed under the uh, watchful eye of a Roman officer to a specified market or meeting places to do your business. Let's let's march a little bit further beside this stone wall, uh, sandstone, the local stone, because of course the wind sill, which was a hard stone, they couldn't actually build with that, but they could build with the sandstone and they used the local limestone for mortar. And there was lots of sandstone, particularly heading towards Brampton, you might say, Lanacost and so on. We're now heading to Williford Farm. Now, on the end of the barn wall, there is a, a, a centurial stone to Gellius Philippus, which is about you know, a foot by nine inches, a stone filled with this Roman inscription. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? We know that the wall in, in the first phase of it was divided up into 15-mile lengths. This length of 15 miles was then divided between three legions. So each legion built five miles of the wall, and they built it to their own specifications. Clearly, somebody in authority, Adrian or the governor, said, right, this is the plan. A wall, a ditch, a mark castle every mile, turrets in between, and then they left the legionary office to decide on their own plans for the wall itself, for the mark castles of the turrets. And that's how we can distinguish between the legion working and determine that each legion built five miles. Then they divided that five miles amongst the 10 cohorts of the legion. So each legion was divided into 10 cohorts, 
Not clear whether all of them were up on the wall building, but most of them were, and each cohort had six centuries. So in what appears to be um, a way of inspecting the work of the soldiers, each century of 80 men building a length of wall marked each end of its length with what we call a centurial stone. So it just, very simple, it had a reverse C or a seven, which stood for century, and then the name of the centurion, Philippus, in this case. And then at the end of each cohort's length, you would have, let's say, the century of Philippus, centurial sign, Philippus, cohorts three, C-O-H for cohorts three, I-I-I. And we can only assume, because these occur throughout the whole length of the wall, that these are uh, placed on it so that the commanding officer could come along and inspect the work of his soldiers. Now, we come down steps, we follow the line of the wall and come to the bridge abutment, actually in the valley bottom of the River Irthing, which is a massively dynamic river, which drains the great wastes up in Kielder Forest, as it were. So it's got an enormous catchment and floods very fast. It has a tremendous body of water. And that is evidenced in what remains of the bridge abutments, because the western side, they're not there. It's been washed away by the constant erosive forces of this dynamic river. Can you talk us through what we can witness at this point? Yeah. So as you say, Mark, we were at one of the really iconic places on the wall, the crossing of the River Irving. Uh, there, are the, uh, there are several places, of course, where Hayden's Wall had to cross a river. Um, uh, Chester's, Cholliford, by Marcastle 27, here beside Marcastle 49, Carlisle beside Marcastle 66 over the Eden and so on, and streams in between. So if it was a small stream, um, you could create just a, a culvert. But here, uh, you have to have a bridge because it's quite a substantial river for the north of England, and it is also often in spate. So a proper bridge was constructed, uh, several arches crossing the river to the far bank, but the river has worn away the far bank, so we've lost the other side of it, and we're faced with a very steep bank ahead of us called Harrow Scar. And this bank was so steep that Collingwood Bruce, who wrote the first modernish guidebook to the wall in the middle of the 19th century, said the pilgrim along the wall gets to this point, he's walked nearly 50 miles, and he looks ahead and there's this dark bank ahead of him. But the bank is a modern creation to its present steepness because of the river wearing it away. So we're just left with one abutment. The fascinating thing about this abutment, it demonstrates even in Roman times, a river was moving westwards because the abutment is gradually rebuilt further west and further west uh, during its lifetime. And what we're left with very clear evidence for this the pressure caused by th this particular river. So we cross over the Millennium Bridge, which was put in place for the National Trail back in 2000. We climb up the slope from the bridge abutment to the top of the slope is well, under a quarter of a mile. And we come to Harris Car, uh, where there's a mile castle remains. And this is an important transition point. I wonder if you could explain to us what this is. The spot's fascinating and very important. Uh, the eastern part of Hayden's Wall, although we've travelled along so far, uh, was all built originally in stone. 
And at this point, at the crossing of the Irving, the material of construction changed to turf. We don't really know why. It might just be because turf is more plentiful than good building stone. I mean, the, the building stone in Cumberland is quite soft. There was a certain format to it, and the layering of it was very structured. We tend to see turf as a sort of inferior material, but most Roman forts were originally built of turf and timber, not stone. About the same width as the turf wall, which is 20 feet wide, was usually built around Roman forts. And once that started decaying, it was replaced in stone. So the Romans built in a very careful manner. They cut their turfs carefully. Later Roman writer states that Roman turfs should be cut 18 inches by 12 inches by 6 inches thick. And you have to cut it at the right season, incidentally, before it gets too tangled and difficult to cut. So they cut the turf and place the turfs earth to earth and turf to turf to build up a rampart. Well, you can go to Vindolanda and still see one which was built 40 years ago, perhaps. So we're heading west beside a wonderful stretch of Hadrian's Wall, very often thought of as one of the premier exhibitions of the frontier wall itself. People come and admire it, and it's got lots of interesting features on it. But it brings you to, after a quarter of a mile, Burdarsville Roman Fort, which is the first one in Cumbria, and it is a hugely impressive site. It was an auxiliary fort set precisely on the line of the wall. It had a garrison of infantry and cavalry, and inside there were all sorts of elements that uh, are distinctive of a Roman fort. So can you perhaps tell us something about the troops who were stationed here? Well, it's quite a large fort, certainly in the second and third centuries, held a, uh, a unit of soldiers which had been raised in modern Transylvania in Romania first cohort of Dacians, and some of the sculpture found here shows on it their curved sword. Of course, we're talking about a society and garrison that is drawn from the entire elements of the empire itself. So we're not talking about Britons, we are talking about people who spoke different tongues, they have different approaches to things, different cultures they brought with them. Well, I'm afraid, Mark, I think that's one of the great myths of the Roman army on Hadrian's Wall. There's been a lot of work over this um, over many years. When units were established in the Roman army, they recruited locally. The Batavians recruited from modern ne the Netherlands, for example. The Pannonian unit based on Hadrian's Wall originally recruited uh, from modern Pannonia, which is um, Austrian Hungary. But once this unit moved to its new base, it started recruiting locally. And this is absolutely clear because the Romans liked to erect tombstones and they liked to record where they came from, what their units were and so on. So when a unit like the Dacians came right away across Europe from modern Romania to be based on Bird Oswald, they would have started recruiting locally. And they recruited mostly from Britain, from Gaul, modern France, and from Western Germany. We know that at Housteads, we've got Germans in occupation with German names. Although they kept their traditions going. I mean, as the modern army does, grenadiers wearing these um, busbies, which they took over from the French, incidentally. But I mean, they haven't worn those in battle for 200 years, but they still wear them today on parade. So 
All the traditions carried on, but the soldiers were recruited locally. This is not to say that there weren't on and off inputs of other people from other parts of the empire, because, as you said, the Roman Empire was very cosmopolitan. People moved around. But on the whole, the recruiting pattern is clear. It's not just a military fort in isolation. There was a supportive community, what was known as a vicus, either side, to the east and the west. I wonder if you could explain something about that supporting community. The soldiers would arrive here with their own families and with merchants. We see this in Caesar's Gallic Wars. He describes it. The army is followed by, technical term, it's camp followers. Um, and they take up their camps outside the Roman forts. Merchants, soothsayers, priests, everybody who could get a quick buck out of the Roman soldiers, live there. Were the families actually living in the forts or were the forts exclusively the preserve of the soldiers themselves? Whether they lived in Roman forts is an interesting question. When I came into Roman archaeology 50-odd years ago, there was a very clear distinction. Soldiers in the forts, women and children outside. But we now see, partly through writing tablets, we can see that there is evidence for women inside Roman forts. Whether they were allowed to stay in overnight is another matter, probably depended upon the camp commander. But it's a thriving community here at Bird Oswald with a civil settlement on the ground we've just walked over from Harriscar Mar Castle and extending well to the west as well with what we think probably was a marketplace triangular marketplace in the centre of it, showing trading's going on. So we leave Bird Oswald Roman Fort, we follow the National Trail, initially beside the stone wall, which is evident, and then that peters out, and then we switch a little further south and rejoin the turf wall, and we head, continuing on uh, through pasture land with the turf wall, we cross Wall Burn, and we come to a, an earthen remains of a mile castle, and then we come to Coombe Crag, which is a farm. But down to the left at this point, in the gorge of the earthing, a beautiful gorge, wooded gorge, there's a sandstone quarry, and this is Coombe Crag Quarry. As you remarked earlier, the wall is built of sandstone. It's easier to work. Technically, the wall is coarse rubble. And if you look at the size of the stones, they're easy stones to handle. Um, it seems to me in the very early stages to the east end of the wall, you have very large stones, which would take four men to manhandle. And they stop using those very quickly. And they turn to using stones of an easy size to um, place on top of each other and move around. And they got these always from local quarries, sometimes north of the wall. There's quarries north of the wall, there's quarries south of the wall. Here at Croom Crag, we know it's a Roman quarry because we've got Roman inscriptions uh, carved on the side of the quarry wall. Fascinating area there. Uh, I love wandering down into Coombe Crag. It, that's a, a lovely sinuous section of the earthing. It's a nature reserve and so forth. So that's a fascinating area to, for the visitor to come to. Uh, we continue now west beyond Coombe Crag Farm and we actually pass two turrets that are beside the road, Piper Syke and Lees Hill, and it gives you the opportunity to pace the distance of a Roman third of a mile. The turrets are a third of a mile apart, which may be significant in another way, 
because it's about the distance apart where you can start recognizing friend for foe, military from civilian, which is somewhere around 500 feet. So the turrets are very carefully positioned by the Roman army. So we head on west with the Milo Road and we come to Pike Hill viewing station or signal station. There's half of it left. It's askew to the line of the wall because it predates the Roman frontier. And it's a marvellous viewpoint. You're looking over the Earthing Valley and looking oh, southwest as far as Blencathra. Perhaps you can explain what it actually did. It's a nice combination of features. We've got the best surviving turret, 52A. Every mark castle and turret along the wall is numbered from Wall's End at the eastern end and then numbered westward from there. So... It's easy to, as you say, work out, you know, between A and B is a third of a Roman mile. The turret here continued in occupation right through to the end of Roman Britain, so far as we can see. But right next to it, I mean, just a few metres away, is the corner of an earlier tower. And if you come up to the tower, you'll see that it's in a tremendous viewing point. You look out from that to the north, And it's an observation tower, we think, in relationship to the predecessor of Hadrian's Wall, where there were earlier forts across the Tyne-Solway Isthmus. And these earlier forts had outlooks to the north. This is one of them. There's another better preserved one further east at Walltown. And would the purpose of this be just for signalling or observation of the borderlands to the north? These are really more, if you like, observation towers. We've got an inscription from Nineveh on the Tigris, a place which is, of course, uh, well known um, in ancient history, uh, which was carved by Roman soldier there. And he carved on the rock the eyes of the eagle. So it's demonstrating what the purpose of these towers is. They're observation towers, not really signalling towers, in primary function, they're keeping watch to the north. So the one at Pike Hill, much earlier than Hadra's Wall, but it was built to allow soldiers in the valley behind, in the Irthing Valley, to have eyes up on the ridge to the north. But as you say, there are also signal towers. So once you've got your observation point, by Jove, the Caledonians are coming over the hill, what should we do? You have to send a signal back to the fort behind the wall or the installation behind the wall. So they do serve two purposes. Now we'll um, we'll head on west because time is pressing. Uh, we go through the little hamlet of Banks, which is a, a lovely little spot. I, I always enjoyed coming through there. And then we'll head up to Hare Hill. And there we find a little bit of wall that's quite enigmatic. Yes, we're into the territory of the edge of Lanacost Priory here, which is interesting in its own right. That's down to the south of where we are, and it contains Roman stones, even to this day in its structure. This bit of wall was rebuilt many decades ago. The landowner just collected the stone and put it all together, one on top of the other, and watered it just to make a fine monument. And for many years, it was the highest rebuilt, not original, rebuilt section of Hadrian's Wall. So while we touch on mortar, perhaps it's worthwhile pointing out that most of Hadrian's Wall was not originally mortared. The facing stones were mortared because you need a bedding for the next um, course up. 
One course you lay either a bedding of mortar or clay, the next stone on it, and course up and going up like that. But the core in the centre of the original wall is usually either earth, clay, mixed up with rough stone, sometimes dug out of the ditch. The core itself wasn't mortared. Uh, I think that we'll we'll head on to the what I think is the sort of the termination of the actual physical walk we're doing, which is about nine kilometres. We'll go on just beyond the farm there, Hare Hill, to Craggle Hill, because I think we ought to just discuss the westernmost part of the frontier itself and get the sense of the contrast between the drama that anybody walking the trail of being over the windsill and they've come across that gap from Greenhead to Gilsland. And then you've had this wonderful stretch that we've notionally walked now. And we're looking out across a landscape that um, uh, when I'm there, I always feel I'm in Offa's Dyke country because it's you're in a totally different kind of landscape, but you're actually looking out towards the Solway. So can you tell, tell us something about the characteristics of the turf hall in that area and what it's, uh, and its relationship to the frontier? I, I would say this is one of my favourite bits of the wall. Um, it's, it's wonderful. You, you've left behind the valley. You cl- climb slowly up to, to Craggle Hill, and then suddenly you're on the top of the escarpment and you're looking west. It almost takes your breath away. If the light's clear, you can see the Isle of Man. Uh, right away in the distance, if you swivel your eyes a bit to the right, you're looking at Burnswark Hill in southern Scotland. And the walk just carries on. We're roughly at Marcastle 54, and the wall ends at Marcastle 80. So you can see there's a lot of walls still beyond us. We're not so much to see, alas. Not even the forts show how much to uh, distinguish themselves. But we have the same pattern originally built as a turf wall, replaced in stone, the addition of forts, going right the way through past Carlisle to Bonus and Solway. And there the linear barrier ends, but the Roman protective measures don't. So for another 25 miles, perhaps, beyond Bowness, what we do have are the continuing line of small forts, which now we call mile fortlets at every mile, towers in between, but not connected by a linear barrier, and a number of forts, of which the best visible one is at Maryport on the Cumberland Coast, next to Senhouse Roman Museum, where you can still see the earthworks of the fort at Maryport. And just beyond that is the last known tower on the line of the wall. So from 54, we've still got up to Marcastle 80, and then another 25 miles beyond that of Roman frontier works to see. That section, that coastal section that runs down there on the broadening Solway Firth as it moves into the Irish Sea, uh, that must have been vulnerable to warrant that kind of attention. You've got to ask yourself what the Romans are protecting themselves from. And whether it was real or not, presumably um, they envisaged a threat from across the Solway, perhaps walking across the sands uh, or shallow boats. If you stand at Maryport today, you, you almost feel as though you can reach out your hand and touch Criffle, the hill on the other side of the estuary. What's interesting, however, is that this stretch of fortifications didn't last very long, just 20 years, and then they were abandoned completely and forever, apart from the forts. The forts survive, but not the smaller installations like the Malfortlets and Towers. 
So it suggests that whatever they feared initially didn't come to pass. It's interesting. We've done that lovely walk and you've carried us mentally through beyond Carlisle and to the coast. That transports us in physical ground, but we've also carried ourselves over 300 years uh, to the end of the Roman jurisdiction. Can you give us a little bit of a feeling how that will have impacted on the communities and the settlements themselves? But Oslo is a good place to explore this because we can see that occupation there continued after the Roman period through the excavations of Tony Wilmot. Hainer's Wall, as far as we can see, is still firing on all cylinders in 409 or 410, whenever Roman Britain technically came to an end. And it came to an end because the empire was under pressure in the centre from the Goths, and so the emperor had his people write to the administrators in Britain saying, you're on your own now, mateys, get on with it. It ended with a whimper rather than a bang in many parts of, of the empire. And bearing in mind that most of the soldiers based in the forts along the wall were probably recruited locally from the civil settlements outside, from the local farmsteads, perhaps, um, the people, the soldiers and their families just stayed. Some of those people will have stayed. They would have been part of the communities that carried on for generations later. The indigenous people that became the clans, the, the border reavers that we describe as today. Well, that's been a most majestic little focus on the wall today. I've really enjoyed it, David. For the last 30 years, Hadrian's Wall has been a great focus of mine since actually I read your book that you did with Brian Dobson, A Penguin Guide to Hadrian's Wall. Uh, I must thank you for giving your time to Country Stride. It's been a great pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you. journeys and then with that fabulous view out towards the Solway and we've walked through a few hundred years of history there Mark and discovered some very impressive bits of uh, archaeological history. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating. Every time I go and look at that particular section of the wall I discover new things and once you become a bit of a geek as it were (laughs) you realise that it is a learning curve that is still unfolding. I have to say, so I've walked um, parts of the National Trail on two occasions now. Um, Firstly, on the Pennine Way, and secondly, on the Pennine Journey. I was always um, surprised by how busy it was. And loads of the people walking it are absolutely fascinated, aren't they, by that period in history. Yeah, they are indeed. It's, uh, It's classical history. Next year, we'll mark the... 1900th anniversary of Hadrian paying his one and only visit to Britannia. It attracts people from a wide international audience. Yeah, there was all nations of this world when I wandered it. And in fact, there were a a couple of very brave lads. Um, This was a very, very cold, wet day when I was walking um, from the east to the west. And there were two lads dressed up in full Roman soldier garb (laughs) 
and they must have been freezing. You know, they had the kind of Roman skirt thing. I don't know the terminology really, but uh, and they had full shields. It was incredibly impressive. It takes all sorts. Anyway, the usual housekeeping. This is episode number forty-eight. Forty-eight, which is actually goes with the mild castle at the beginning of the walk. Wow. <laughs> There we we go. Uh, Still approaching the big 5-0, for which we have something very special planned. Um, You can find uh, a map of today's walk uh, with annotations and Mark's lovely linescape at www.countrystride.co.uk. And actually, there's a load of photos of yourself and David along that stretch of wall as well, isn't there, Mark? Yeah, this is a very well-documented section of the wall that I've taken lots of pictures of because it's so rich in detail. So if you would like to view some photos of some of the subjects we've discussed today, then um, do head to the website. We're on social as well, Mark. At Countryside One on Facebook and Twitter. Very good. Um, We've had some correspondence, Mark, actually. We do get emails fairly regularly, but this was lovely. I thought I'd just read this out. This is from Jen. Uh, And she says... Hello, I just wanted to drop you a line and thank you for such a wonderful podcast. I came across it through recommendations I found on Instagram a few weeks ago, and I've only just started listening yesterday while at work carrying out boring but necessary harness inspections. Normally, I would be doing that surrounded by my colleagues, but we can only have one of us in the office at a time, so I thought I'd best have some friendly voices to keep me company. As a native Brit, now located in Canada, the homesickness can hit hard at times, and with COVID-related lockdowns, there's no exception. It was an absolute joy to listen to you heading up Scarfell Pike in the first episode of Walk. I thoroughly enjoyed myself several years ago, along with the walks in other episodes that I've listened to so far. The people that you have the opportunity to interview are complete wonders to listen to. I found myself laughing out loud at points and hoping they all find themselves safe and well during this difficult year thanks again i can't wait to listen to more that's from jen in canada becoming another one of our international listeners along with rory out in where's rory mark oh rory in california that's right and then we have one down in new zealand next up we've got a bit of a treat give us a a hint mark aw is usually a a hint i think for most people aw and Two fantastic guests, including yourself, Mark, of course. You'll be an important part of that one because you knew the great man well yourself. So, yeah, celebrating a very important anniversary in our next podcast, which will appeal to all AW fans. But until then, we're saying goodbye from the north of the county, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening, everyone.